want to go to Acts 2. We'll be uh, um, making our way to that passage here in just a moment. Have you ever found yourself feeling jealous of other people? Now, I ask that question knowing full well that the Bible always talks about jealousy in bad terms, all right? So to say the right, yeah, to acknowledge the fact that I feel jealous actually means, all right, this is not a good thing. But let me say it this way, the jealousy in the Bible, it generally is pointing to this idea of bitterness, like jealous, like not only do I want what you have, I don't want you to have it. I'm angry that you have it and I want it, not you. I mean, it, it's that kind of a thing. Um, Jealousy also is a reflection of an ambitious heart. You know, it's like, I need more, I need more, I need more. So, so in that context, we could say that the idea of being jealous is, is never good, is never a good thing. I'm referring to the kind of jealousy that is a little bit milder. In fact, I actually did multiple word searches for synonyms of jealousy. Nothing really seemed to work or convey the idea. So I'm going to stick with the word of jealousy. But sometimes this idea or sometimes this feeling of jealousy can actually be motivating, it can actually compel us to do things differently. I remember um, during my freshman orientation of college, I was sitting there and on the stage was a, another a student. And uh, he was talking about his experience as part of one of the summer mission teams. Our college, our university sent out uh, mission teams that would go for all summer, so three months. You're doing in some other country, serving, doing different things. And he's talking about his trip. And I remember sitting there thinking, before I graduate, I'm going to do that. I want an experience just like that. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, as things happened before my junior or senior year, I actually did. I actually got a chance to spend a summer, three months living on a kibbutz in northern Israel. Um, <clears throat> changed my life. But it came from hearing some, someone else's experience and saying, I want that. I was jealous in this essence of his experience, wanted something like that. Another time I felt jealous um, actually goes back even a little further into um, during my high school days. <clears throat> um, I played football in high school and our, our, my senior year, our, our high school team went undefeated. The only time in the history of the school that that had happened. Um, and so we, we were pretty good and we were in the state playoffs. And uh, so we were playing actually another school. Uh, as this, Usually with state playoffs, you play people from other regions. This actually happened to be <clears throat> another high school in our same town. Um, so this was a big deal. And the game went into overtime and we lost. It was, it was really, and I felt, you know, all of us, we all felt so dejected. And I remember looking across the field to the other team and they're jumping up and down and celebrating and they're exuberant. And I remember thinking, I wish that was us. You know, I wish, I wish we, I wish I could experience what they were experiencing. But actually what that does, that causes us to mo be motivated to work harder and to continue trying for the next year. <clears throat> so when I ask, have you ever found yourself feeling jealous of other people? I really mean that in a good way. I'm really you know, what we're saying is that, you know, I want what they have. I, there's something desire about what they have that they've got. Now, as taught by Jesus, that's what people who are outside the faith should think when they look at us. They should look at us and say, I don't know what it is, but whatever it is, whatever they have, I want what they've got. I want to experience what they're experiencing. So when someone looks at the group of people known as Grace Covenant Statesville, they should say, there's something about that group of people that I want in my life as well. Now, part of that is certainly the presence of God. 
And we can't control that. That's not something we can turn a switch on and off and, and, and make that happen. But a big part of that is also the quality of the relationships among the people. What, in fact, um, that really becomes a, a really key marker about a group is what do we see happening within the group itself? What's the dynamics like? Now, we're in a second, um, today is the second in a two-part series on unity. We talked about it last week. Um, and today we're talking about it again, but specifically unity within the body of Christ. So unity among Christ followers, those who call themselves Christians, and particularly those within a local body of believers. Unity within the body of Christ matters very much. It matters. It matters. It matters. Jesus, again, says to us that it's what those outside the faith will find the most attractive about you. It's that unity. It's what you do amongst yourselves that others will find most attractive. It's not just critical for the growth of the church. It's not like we, all right, we're doing just to actually, all right, one more people, we want to grow. Really, the, our very survival rests on this. Now, as we discussed last week, when unity exists among Christ followers and when unity um, exists among believers, the experience can be incredibly exciting and it can be very rewarding. Now, we get a glimpse of what that looks like today in the passage we're going to look at. Now, before we read, again, we're in Acts chapter 2. The context for this is this. Jesus has died. He's been resurrected. Um, And we know from Acts 1 that Jesus was walked with his disciples for about 40 days after his resurrection. Okay. And he said his last word to them, don't leave Jerusalem, stay here and wait till the Holy Spirit comes. 10 days later, Pentecost, Pentecost is 50 days after it was Passover, which is when he was crucified. So 50 days later on Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came down and we know from um, Acts that, um, the Holy Spirit came and, and, and um, it, in fact, it says it looked like there was tongues of fire that came to rest on each of them. And it created this big commotion. In fact, a commotion so significant that people in the rounding areas in our parts of town realized something's going on here. And Peter got up and, you know, and to this crowd that had assembled, he said, listen, you know, you guys, I hear some of you thinking that they're drunk. And I say, that's not what's going on here. Here, let me tell you what's happening here. And he kind of laid it all out for them. And after he got done talking to them, it says that about 3,000 people were added to their numbers that day. So about 3,000 people came to Christ. Our focus this morning is the very next verse after we read it. So Acts chapter two, verse 42 <clears throat> You can, again, follow along on the screen or on your own Bible, your app, or whatever you want to read from, from the NIV version. They, the new believers, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Father, for what we see happening with this group of people. Uh, I have no doubt they had no clue that 2,000 years later that someone's going to be reading about them and their experiences. But Lord, it's really telling and helpful for us today. So thank you for their experience. Thank you for the lives they lived and the way it was captured for us to learn from today. And so Holy Spirit, um, help us uh, to hear what we need to hear this day, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, clearly, these were some exciting times for the Christ followers. I mean, there, there was, this was the place to be. I mean, if this was a happening place in town, this was it. Um, and so everyone's excited, and there was a lot of things happening. Now, I've heard over the years, I've heard numerous sermons about this passage. Um, in fact, I've probably given one or two um, over the years as well. Now, the focus tends to be on four things that are, are the four things identified in verse 42. They folk, the people committed themselves to teaching, to fellowship, to eating. You know, we always spiritualize, it's like breaking bread. It was eating. They were eating, you know, and prayer. Um, so those four things. Now, the, the general idea behind is that if you engage in these four things, things will usually go well for your group. And more often than I think that's true. Now, the reason for that is the early church was focused on what mattered not their differences. <clears throat> now remember, the setting for this was Pentecost, okay? And tens of thousands of people had descended on Jerusalem from their neighboring regions to be part of this celebration, to be part of this time of festival. Um, in Acts 2, 15 different people groups are mentioned by name. So we can assume there's even more but 15 different nationalities, different languages, different cultures were there. And 3,000 of them gave their lives to Jesus and many of them stuck around, okay? So you've got this group of people, many of whom are strangers. They don't know each other. They've never seen each other. They speak different languages. They're from different cultures. They have different preferences for food. All the things are different, and yet they're all now forced together here very quickly and they need to try and make sense of that. <clears throat> it would have been very easy for them to get caught up with the challenges that come from hanging out with people who are different than yourself. I mean, we all know that. I mean, we've, we've, we've had those meetings or those events or those weekends where this just isn't a good fit. These people are really different than... They're okay, but it just doesn't work. It would have been easy for that to happen. But instead, what we see they did is they gave their time to what mattered. They didn't focus on the differences. They focused on what is Jesus saying to us? What's the Bible saying? What are the prophets, the teaching? How do we learn? What do we need to think? On the fellowship, on the relationship building, on the, in learning about one another, learning from them, being educated as to what was different and eating and everything's better around a meal. And then prayer. Sometimes let's just give it to the Lord and let's just trust him. And <clears throat> but you notice here that none of those things, the teaching, fellowship, eating, and prayer, none of these things can be done in isolation. I guess you can eat by yourself, but that's just kind of sad. But, uh, but right, right, I mean, you, get, you see that, that all these things need to happen with other people. That was the intent here. <clears throat> the early church made fellowship and building community a priority. In verse 44, it says, all the believers were together and had everything in common. Let me read that again. All the believers were together and had everything in common. 
Any of you red, white, and blue Americans get nervous when you hear that? And the reason why is because that can be understood as collective socialism. All right? Now, don't get nervous, okay? Socialism as we know it today is not what's being talked about here in, in the book of Acts. Now, now I will say <clears throat> that a collective way of life can work if it's voluntary. Um, there's a huge difference between forced to share what you have and voluntarily sharing what you have. Um, we can see this effectiveness, again, uh, that my short-term, my summer mission experience in Israel, the whole kibbutz movement in Israel, voluntary collectives, where the collective, the group, owns the property, owns the everything, everything, the income that comes in from them is shared and distributed evenly. They all change roles every year. So, I mean, it's, it's very much together. Now, there are pros or strengths and weaknesses to any system, but my point here is that it can work. You know, so I don't want you to get nervous because, again, we're not trying to get political here. We're not trying to get into that kind of stuff. Um, don't get nervous, but it is okay to be a bit uncomfortable. The way of life for Christ followers and acts is really countercultural to the individualistic way of life prioritized here in the U.S., and again, the passage is not telling us to sell everything, to buy 50 acres and start a commune. Okay, that's not what, what it's saying here. It is clearly telling us that relationships must be a priority for those who follow Jesus. Amen. The Christian faith was, is very personal. It's very a personal thing, but it was never, never meant to be individualistic. <clears throat> now, the life they experience can only come when people truly care for one another. That's what followers of Jesus do. And that's what we see in this group of believers in Acts. The early church lived out authentic love as they valued and cared for one another. Now, because of the way the people treated one another, the Holy Spirit worked through their lives in miraculous ways. They were transformed and others also gave their lives to Jesus. Now, as I said at the beginning um, of my talk here, that today's focus is on unity. Now, anyone notice that the word unity isn't even used in the passage we read? And I really haven't mentioned it again since I mentioned it up top. Now, even though unity isn't talked about specifically in the passage, the picture that's painted there is very vivid. And it's very clear that unity is one of those things you know it when you see it. May not necessarily be able to divine each of their characteristics, but it's there, and you know it, and we can certainly see that within that group of people here in Acts chapter 2. <clears throat> but here's the thing wishful thinking doesn't get us to unity. Unity takes effort. And unfortunately, there are often barriers that can keep us from having unity. One of those barriers is the simple fact that we have an adversary who seeks to devour through division. Again, Peter is very vivid in the picture he paints for us in, uh, in 1 Peter 5. Be alert and sober of mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Now, this reality has been acknowledged through the centuries 
Back in the 1800s, there's an English preacher, Charles Spurgeon. Some of you may have heard the name before. Uh, He made this statement, right? It just applies uh, to what we're talking about here. He said, Satan hates Christian fellowship. It is his policy to keep Christians apart. Anything which can divide saints from one another, he delights in. He attaches, listen to this, he attaches far more importance to godly community than we do. Since union is strength, he does his best to promote separation. Now, in our day and age, most people tend to deny the very existence of Satan. Or if they don't deny him outright, they minimize his significance. We'll joke about it, we'll minimize it. You know, it's something that people just don't give time to. But remember last week we talked about, what, remember right before Jesus was taken away, he was arrested to be crucified. He was praying. The very last thing he was doing before he was arrested was praying. And what was he praying for? He's praying for us. He's praying for his followers. And he says this in John 17, I pray for them, his followers. <clears throat> I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. My prayer is that you protect them from the evil one. May they be one as we are one. Jesus' greatest concern for his followers after he left was that the enemy would cause them to lose unity and fall apart and they would go their separate ways. That was his greatest concern. Now, Paul reminds us of this very thing in his letter to the Christians who were in Ephesus. In chapter six, he says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Satan's strategy is simple, divide and conquer. If he can keep us from fighting, if he can keep us fighting and just being disagreeing among ourselves, he wins. Another barrier that we often see is this one uh, where we become self-focused and self-consumed. Paul tells us in his letter to the group in Philippi, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Pretty much every pastor throughout the world knows that if he or she is a pastor long enough, some people will become unhappy in their church and leave. It's just just the way things work. Now, over the course of my career, I've made an observation. I've noticed a pattern in this behavior. Um, It happens every time without exception. Um, Now, what happens first is a person comes to a church, and I'm not talking about if somebody comes here and it just doesn't feel a good fit and they leave. I'm I'm talking about somebody that actually has been engaged. So they come, they find their place in their church, and they're very excited about things. They volunteer to serve, they get involved, they join a group, they're all in. Okay, now, but then something happens. Now, I don't know, it could be one year, it could be 10 years, the time is not relevant, but there's something that happens. It's as if a switch is flipped inside of them. And instead of being excited about the things that are happening in the church and then their involvement in it, they become focused on themselves and what makes them happy or more importantly to them, what makes them unhappy. Now, to be clear, Sometimes that feeling is justified. I mean, the simple reality is someone may say something hurtful and that's painful. You know, and I I just, I can't, I can't, 
So I get that. Or, or it is sometimes it's been possible, you know, maybe that the, there's biblical error in what's being taught or there's things. So, so, I'm, so I'm not just saying that everything is always hunky-dory in churches. <clears throat> I'm just saying that sometimes though, that they feel, in those, when I said this, in these situations, you can pinpoint the exact moment. At this point in time, this is when I, things started to shift for me. This is when the switch was flipped, where I started to realize things were, were changing and happening. Too often, however, again, from my perspective, a person starts to accumulate little grievances, and they stack up. <clears throat> it's not one thing in particular, and it's not one thing that I can put in, but it's just kind of this general feeling. And... You know, it may start off with, you know, the music's too loud, the sermon's not what I want to hear, or, you know, it's something like that. And, and it's not what someone did often, sometimes it's what they didn't do. You know, so-and-so walked by and they didn't say hi to me today. You know, it's just, again, little things like this that in and of themselves aren't necessarily bad, but it just, they start to accumulate. Now, here's my point. <clears throat> if you find yourself thinking more than you probably should, but you find yourself thinking about things that are wrong with our group here, let me suggest that you're on the edge of that slippery slope that can lead to disunity. And when the focus is on me, myself, and I, unity will be missing in the church. Now, if you ever find yourself in that place, let me suggest two things. The first thing is this, make two assumptions. I've said this before, do you know what those two assumptions are? Assume positive intent. Assume good intentions. Assume they tried to do the right thing. They just made a mistake. You know, so it's when we start assigning motive, that, man, things get, fall off the tracks really fast. Well, they don't like me, or they hurt me, or they, they're mean, or, I mean, all of a sudden, we start creating all these things in our mind that don't exist. So assume positive intent. Assume they tried to do the right thing. And the second assumption is, remember what that one is? Yes, assume there's more information that you don't have, that there's more to the story. There's something else that's going on here that you just don't factor in. And so if you make, again, we're always told, don't assume things, but this is one case where you should always make two assumptions. Assume they tried to do the right thing, just got it wrong. And secondly, assume that there's information you're missing. And so when you do that, <clears throat> that's the first step. The second thing then is, is call, email, or text me and say, can we talk? Now, if it was related to another person, call them or text them and say, can we talk? <clears throat> and I would even suggest don't put it in an email. <laughs> now, I will say this, sometimes it's helpful to just put it in an email, but before you do that, don't put anybody in the address so that you don't accidentally hit send or something. So leave that blank, make sure it's blank. Type it out. Sometimes just in processing it and working it out in your own head by putting it on paper or on your screen, it just, it settles the matter for it. And you don't need to do anything else and that's fine. But, but again, the best thing is just to say, hey. And when you sit down and talk, say, hey, here's what happened. When you did this, here's what it made me feel. Um, and again, I don't mean to minimize some things because some of you have actually experienced this with us and say, hey, the music is too loud and we've made some adjustments, or the room is too cold or too hot at different times of the year, or, you know, there, I've made tweaks in my sermons. I mean, so I'm not, I'm not minimizing that because that's part of life together where we do bump into each other. Um, and I realize that. Um, and we want to remove those obstacles that might keep us from being unified in what we're doing. Um, 
but that's just part of what life is like together. All of us here, we realize, um, that's one of the things I love about us, our leaders here at our church is that we, we all realize we have blind spots. We all make mistakes. Um, and, but there's a real willingness to listen and learn. And uh, we don't always get it right, but our, our hearts are across. And, that's, and I say that across the board, across our campuses. I mean, Pastor Farrell, if you called Pastor Farrell's admin, I need to meet with Pastor Farrell, you'd get a meeting with him. It might not be until next week, but you would get a meeting with him. All of us have an open door policy. There's nothing that we think is off limits, so to speak, in conversations. We have to be upfront. And the idea of genuine relationships is so important. Another barrier is that we value being right more than we value being united. Um, Can I share a true confession? Um, I really, really struggled uh, with this issue on social media in the beginning months of the pandemic. Uh, There was just so much stuff that was just wrong. I mean, it it was just exasperated things and made things worse. They were just blatant lies and some of them. And there was something inside of me that made me feel like I had to correct them. You know, that, that I had to point out their mistake and tell them, no, 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 here's the way it is or they should be. However, there wasn't too long when I discovered that I rarely changed anyone's mind in the process. And, and I discovered that the world didn't come to an end if I just let it go. <laughs> you know, because that's what we think. Well, if I don't fix this and this doesn't get out, then the whole world's gonna fall apart. And my life was so much more peaceful and I was able to hang on to some of those weirdos as friends, right? And in the end, that was more important than being right. And that leads to the last barrier towards unity, that we hold on to points of offense rather than giving grace and forgiveness. Um, One of the, many of you know, I I, uh, do some adjunct teaching and one of my master's courses is um, on managing change and conflict in organizations. And when we get to the part about conflict, I, I always tell them that conflict is God's fault. And I, I, and I stand firmly behind that. All conflict is God's fault. Simp, now all of you are like, wait, there's heresy coming. God created us all different. It's only a matter of time till if we're together long enough that we find something we disagree about. Okay, the fact that we disagree is conflict. That's not the problem. How we handle that disagreement is where we get messed up. Okay, so the fact that we disagree, the fact that, hey, that's not working, or hey, this isn't working, the fact that all that stuff happened is not a sign that there's a weakness or that there's even disunity. It just means that we're sharing life together and we're crossing paths now and then. What happens next is where we get tripped up. What matters is how we handle it. In that regard, always strive to be gracious. Always strive to be gracious, to treat other people the way you'd want to be treated. And sometimes the best course of action is simply to offer forgiveness, even if they don't ask for it. You just let it go and you forgive. Unforgiveness always breaks down relationships and results in division. Forgiveness, on the other hand, always allows for healing within the person and for unity to be restored within the group. Now, from my perspective, I think we as a church are in a pretty good spot. I think most of us generally like each other. Uh, I think the evidence, the evidence of unity is very obvious. 
the things I see, the things I hear about what's happening as you share life with one another is just so encouraging. But with that said, let's not take this for granted. Let's not take this for granted. Let's continue to work for unity among us in the days ahead. Amen? Let's pray. (laughs) Heavenly Father, we're so very grateful again for what we see here in Acts and in this church. And and, Lord, I can only imagine some of the things that they encountered being such a diverse group and having so many new people added to them so quickly and all the things, I'm sure from a logistics standpoint, were just nightmares. But yet in the midst of that, they found time for one another. They found time for you and they grew together in their faith and their relationships. And uh, Lord, you worked through that. Your spirit worked in them. It changed them, but it also made a difference in other people. Lord, may you do the same thing in us. May that be our heart's desire. May that be our heart's cry here at Grace Covenant Statesville. Father, may we be a people that you work with. May we be a people who are united, not always in what in the certain things we're talking about. I'm certain that there's going to be disagreements, but we're united in purpose. We're united in cause. We're united around our love and faith in you. And so, Lord, again, I just can thank you. My prayer is also, Father, for anyone who may be uh, hearing my voice now and they recognize that they may not have unity in their life. There may be things in their life, in their heart, in their past that are causing them, Father, to, that, that, that causes unity to be elusive. Father, I pray that you would give them the grace to be able to either forgive and to let it go, to make a choice and just to, to recognize that you are responsible for any repercussions that need to happen. And if they're not able to forgive and just let it go per se, uh, but Lord, that they even have the courage to actually reach out and to, to, to take steps of faith that would potentially bring about their own healing and maybe even bringing a healing in that relationship. Father, this is an area that some of these things can be so deep and so hurtful and painful in our life. Lord, if we allow it, it can destroy what you desire to do in us and through us. So Lord, may that may we not allow that to happen. Give us strength, Father. Give us courage and boldness. Lord, give us um, mercy and grace and love. Lord, may we be unified in you. And it's in the name of your son, Jesus, I pray all these things. Amen. Amen.